Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, more love. Well, we have a very special lecture episode this week. It's always great when we have these special episodes because we have a guest co-host. Usually, it's just Brent Anderson. But today, for the first time in the history of the Midnight on Earth podcast, we have two guest <gasps> co-hosts it's absolutely incredible of course we have our longtime guest co-host Bryn anderson of hey. vinyl force herbs and by the grace of the almighty ja we have evan burton of indubious yes the incredible band indubious evan burton is here with us as a guest co-host as well hello evan hello it's a pleasure to be here Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Very official there. I like Is that. Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yes. In that situation? Uh, you read the script perfectly. Uh, the teleprompter, <laughs> it seems, was plugged in. And it's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. So stoked to have you here. Very impromptu situation. But here we are. And guess what, people? Guess what we're going to do? Because it's a lecture episode, we're pulling out the king of lectures the king of lecturers, Manly P. Hall. We're pulling out an incredible Manly P. Hall lecture for Evan. Manly P. Hall. And guess what, people? Guess what? Check this out. Evan, the star scene. Evan is a highly enlightened dude. Heaven. Evan. Heaven. Evan. Heaven, <laughs> my lord. Yeah. Evan is a incredible musician on top of all of that is music we have, a, we have another podcast episode if you yeah, would like to go say. refer to that yeah, episode yeah, and of to course catch up yes. a little bit background sure and you know he like he was saying he was on the show definitely incredible episode check that out episode number Can but I? all of these things i just want to say my thing is that he has not been enlightened to the world of manly p hall so nope. much yet First time Manly P. Hall um, lecture con consumption for Evan. Um, <laughs> I would like to say, if I may. Oh, yeah, go ahead. That um, being here with you two in this lighting right now, in this spiritual energy, uh, I'm so excited for what's to come. Wow. You guys are fantastic people. Wow. Jake, I love you, man. You're love a, you too, such bro. a positive, awesome friend. Thank um, you. Your so, your enthusiasm for life is contagious. And uh, Brent, I have in bad our, days. In our in our um, limited time together, <laughs> I have also grown to love you as well. You're thank so sweet you. and amazing, and a, it, just a pleasure to be here, guys. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And for we love Brent as well. That is why she is the guest co-host when we have these lecture episodes and beyond the news episodes, sometimes we have tribute episodes. We've had a couple of those and Bryn has been here with us. Always. I love watching your dynamic together. We have an incredible <laughs> dynamic. She, you very much compliment each other. Um, oh, thank Bryn, you. you do true. very well with the tornado <laughs> of Jake. Yes. She's uh, my rock. Totally. You know? She's very calming. 
She's very uh, she's accommodating. Like Tulsi. Yeah, she's an herbalist, so she's the Tulsi of my life. You're the Tulsi oh, of wow. my dreams. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so look, people, we're gonna do all these things. We're gonna do all these things, but first, I mm. need you to do something for me. Go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth and check out our Patreon page. Here we go. We have different tiers of support. Pick the tier of support that you can handle that you want to give to me. Look, I just, I just cried a tier of support. Thank you, Evan. Your direct <laughs> support, people. Your direct support. <laughs> helps this podcast grow more the information literally the light-filled information that's encoded into every episode of this podcast gets distributed out to the masses of earth for that activation we're raising our collective frequency we're trying to raise our vibration we do that by getting new information adapting and integrating that and then evolving so by you supporting me on patreon you're helping directly with the evolution of humanity through a lot of different channels, you know, there's a lot of pathways to get from that point to that point, but just realize that, yes, that is happening. So if you're feeling so inclined, go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth and check that out. Look at the intro videos. Do this, do this for all of us, do this for the guests. It's not about me. It's about the guests and my guest co-hosts in certain occasions. And I'm assuming if you're on Patreon, you're already on your computer. So follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. Follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, wherever you go to get your podcast. Wherever you chase your pods at. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever player you have. Look, there's this button. You click it. It follows me. You get the notification your device when I drop an episode. It's instant. It happens. You feel it. It comes through the ether to you. So do that for me. And one last mm. thing, one last thing. Tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You remember Evan Burton when he came on talking about his wonderful life and his career with Indubious. So, you know, he's on here. You know, those people that love him, you know, those people that love Bryn, you know, my frequency, you know, their frequency match our frequencies for me. Bring them here. Midnightonearth.com. This guy, man. Bring him <laughs> the, the, on fire. the swagger coming off of you is just. <laughs> I have fun, Evan. I love Dude, doing you're this. You're passionate, man. That's I, what I'm saying. Like, I got a podcast, but I don't care. I mean, I love it. I love it, but I don't <laughs> no, care your podcast about it. Is I, don't, awesome. I don't even care about it compared to how much you love your podcast. Jake was well, meant to do this. Fun. It, he was. It really. Activates it my best talents. It, yeah. And Evan yeah. Burton of Indubious. Look, he's here. The band Indubious is absolutely incredible. Very briefly, it's a band he formed in Oregon with his brother. We're incredible very Spencer. briefly. <laughs> For like three minutes of the set, we're really good. Like we're out. No, they're incredible all the time. But briefly, his story, his brother... Himself, his friends, they started this band at three. There's three now, but you know, people have cycled in and out a little bit. Yep, we started it when we were three years old. That's right. Exactly. And here's the thing it's an incredible band. Check them out in Dubious. They're on Spotify. What's your website again? Uh, Indubiousmusic.com. Indubiousmusic.com. That's of course. Right. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was Indubious Band. 
but sometimes indubiousbabies.com you know that's that's a whole other thing i don't know what that is i don't know that one but okay and, and of course, the, the previous midnight on earth episode with evan you could learn more there as well oh of course yeah and we'll talk about that more at the end of course but before we get to this manly p hall lecture have to read his bio look you know the prerequisites for being a person on a lecture episode of midnight on earth you have to be graduated you have to have left this dimension because if you're here you're still alive i should be able to interview you so these people unfortunately you know it's a lot harder i like the philosophy the thought that has gone into this Yes, and I love the lecture episodes. And but, you know, here or there, whatever dimension they're in, we still read the bio. So, here we go. Manly P Hall founded the Philosophical Research Society in 1934, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the dissemination of useful knowledge in the fields of philosophy, comparative religion, and psychology. In his long career spanning more than 70 years of dynamic public activity, Mr. Hall delivered over 8,000 lectures in the United States and abroad, authored over 150 books and essays, and wrote countless magazine articles. I actually think it was 9,000 lectures, but okay, we'll just roll with it. Many of Mr. Hall's lectures have been transcribed and are available as pamphlets. Others were taped live and the audio recordings are out there on the internet as well. We're going to be listening to one of those. He is perhaps best known for his 1928 classic, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an encyclopedia of the world's wisdom traditions and symbolic disciplines. And he was very, very young when he wrote that. Today, younger generations are rediscovering the works and words of Manly P. Hall, finding that the material he put forth so many years ago is still relevant and useful today. Mr. Hall's hope for humanity was to learn from the greatest minds of all times so that we may solve current problems both in society and in the individual today. Wow. Well, yes, of course. And he was out there serving his entire life. So many lectures, so much going on. And this is going to be Evan's first time. So today, younger generations are rediscovering him. And so is Evan, Evan Burton. So exciting. (laughs) This younger generation is ready to discover. And have you ever heard of that book? The secret teachings of all ages. Yes. And I've heard of Manly P. Hall. I've heard of him. Okay. But the lectures are really where never listened to a lecture. That's his bread and butter. That's where he shines. The books of course Mm -hmm. are amazing, but the human experience, the language, the talking, the interaction, the energy, that's really where the magic happens. Literally. Hmm. Bryn, how are you feeling? Yet another Manly P. Hall lecture. I know we just did one eight episodes ago, but you know, it's our show. We make the rules. So he's back again. I'm ready. I always love Manly P. Hall. I had to wait eight whole episodes to hear Manly P. Hall again. People love him. I love him. People that have been listening to this show haven't ever, a lot of them haven't ever 
been exposed to Manly P. Holland. This is all yeah. new for some people in this podcast format in the digital dimension. I mentioned to you guys earlier, just it always strikes me what an odd name Manly is, you know, it, introducing yourself as Manly. It's, it's a lot to live up to. Well, the mom made the decision in the dad. Manly. Yeah, exactly. Like, like with a newborn, yeah. Is it going to be Rupert or? Let's name him Susie. No, <laughs> let's name him Manly. <laughs> it's a Middle strong name. name. Princeton. <laughs> a strong it's, name. It's actually Man- Palmer. Manly Palmer. Palmer. That's Palmer. a pretty good name. Manly Palmer. <laughs> That's a pretty good name. <laughs> you got a real Manly Palmer, young man. That's why he went with P. <laughs> it's like too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay sorry. so no rest it's fine look we love manly p hall God we've, rest his soul we've learned so much with it look from him he's here with us right now like that's the thing okay so people that have never Hello. listened to a lecture episode before <laughs> this is what happens okay we're talking now we're going to be listening to this lecture with you evan with Brynn, you and i <laughs> are going to be listening to this lecture with you here. and then at the end we reconvene. We talk about the things that Manly talked about and what we learned. Just We're wake me up. Notes. Wake me up when it's time to talk. No, he's oh. look. He's so active. He's ready. He's excited. And I passed out pens and paper to everyone. Manly's yes. sweet language, the nectar. It's just going to go right in your ear. It's just going to activate sweet you. Sweet language nectar, baby. Oh man, he's the <laughs> king. Uh, do you have a song about that? I feel like you do. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there'll be a new Indubious song called Manly. And it, you know, it might be called Sweet Language Nectar, actually. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. Sweet Language Nectar. <laughs> okay. First track so on the, the next Manly album. Manly that first gave me the Sweet Language Nectar. <laughs> this is hilarious, people. Look, I hope you're laughing with us and not at us. We're or laughing like more than us. usual. Now That's our next okay. episode's going to be boring when you're not here. I know. <laughs> We're going to have to somehow get Evan Sorry, by popular request, Evan, you are now moving to my house and podcasting. <laughs> oh, right. He's now my permanent co-host. Is I don't know what his wife's going to say, but, you know, we'll, we'll work it she out. She shares. His daughter might be missing him and things like that, so... Okay, so this lecture, I'm not sure of the year, but it is called... It's 2023 right now. <laughs> that is accurate. Is that you said but you forgot what year it is. The year of the lecture, this recording, I'm unfortunately unsure of, but it's such a powerful, really epic lecture. I've listened to chunks of this. I haven't actually listened to the whole thing, but I listened to enough of it to know that this is just like peak Manly P. Hall. Okay, so this is called Secret Powers and Why We Should Not Use Them. Mm. And this is actually part of a five-part lecture series called Unseen Forces That Affect Our Lives. And this is like the culmination of all five, again, secret powers and why we should not use them. So we have these powers. I love it already, man. He's saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't use them. I, I want to hear what he says. I love everything Manly P. Hall says. So this is going to be really good, people. So buckle up, get your pen, get your notes, and we're going to all reconvene here in just a little bit. So here we go. Mr. Manly P. Hall. Again, secret powers and why we should not use them. The problem this evening is one which I hope that most of you will never be directly involved with. For during many years in 
which I have been a kind of last resort for troubled people, I've had much too frequent contact uh, with this situation, and I think it's only fair that it should be reported and recorded and preserved for those who need it or have a mind to accept it. We all know that the human being is at great, at great disadvantage in the presence of a mystery. We are able to handle the everyday occurrences with a certain amount of skill because we honestly believe that the adversaries that we face are known to us, we can measure our skill against theirs, and if need arises, we can run away and continue the struggle at some other time. But in a mystery, we are totally disoriented. The average person cannot function too much or too often in the presence of intangible factors. Even a little mystery arising in a family can prove to be most disorienting. Secrets are dangerous things because we, we have no way of fighting them. We have very little way of fighting gossips and poison pens and anonymous letters. They all involve certain elements of mystery. Things are intangible. We cannot face them and have it out. From the earliest time, man had more courage in the day than he had in the night. Even when he had his own private cave, this cave was a lot safer as far as he was concerned in the daylight than it was in darkness. After he built houses and put locks on his doors and barred his windows, he was still happier in the daytime than he was at night because in night perhaps old boards would creak or something of that nature. The man became afraid again. In our modern scientific life, man is afraid once more because he is afraid of formulas which he cannot understand. He is afraid of tremendous energies which he, he cannot cope with. They are all mysteries to him. We are a little bit afraid of the minds of other people. We do not know what they are thinking about. We are afraid that they are perhaps planning some secret exploitation of our resources, whatever these things may be. Long ago, man passed through a terrible nightmare, a nightmare of secrets and of darkness and of magic, intensified by a great common belief in the power of evil. The demons lurked in darkness at old crossroads. The fear of spirit possession, the fear of excommunication, of bewitchment, and all these things 
weighed very heavily upon some of our ancestors. They really never knew how to cope with them. They died as much of terrors of the common ailments of the flesh. So when today we observe the long shadow of mystery reaching into our private lives, there is a certain anxiety. We are not able to cope with the problem effectively. And there are certain questions that I think we all must ask. It has been rather well established by ESP researchers that there are possibilities of a certain kind of clairvoyance. The thought transference is very probably a reality and will sometime be standardized or at least far better understood than it is now. We are more or less convinced that clairvoyance is within the reasonable probability of things and many different extrasensory potentials are being experienced within ourselves. To a degree these discoveries are important and useful and helpful and perhaps they will support our basic idealism and our, or our conviction that the universe is a far greater and more important place than we have ever learned that it was. But there's always this little lurking problem. So we can put it in a very simple words of one individual who spent quite a sum of money to have mental absent treatments. This individual was very anxious that a certain person that they knew should change their way of life. So they hired someone, a practitioner, to go to work on the issue. And after a reasonable length of time, the object of all this attention did make some changes in their way of life, including a will in favor of the individual who came to me. Well, this sounded like higher mentalism, uh, doing a pretty good job. You would get testimonials very easily for such procedures. But suddenly the person who came to me broke out in a cold sweat. Uh, this uh, was a little problem. If they could change another individual and get a will in their favor, was it possible that some other individual could change them? Well, we were out mentally dominating somebody else, could it be that somebody else was trying to mentally dominate us? Do these processes work both ways? If it is possible for us to send our thoughts to change the life of someone else, uh, could someone else send their thought and change our lives? If we want to make someone else do something they do not want to do, can they return the favor in kind? It is one of these things in which uh, it was a good rule, but it shouldn't work both ways. Each person feels that he has a right to change others, but he doesn't like the thought that somebody might be secretly trying to change him. The moment we get into this problem, our freedom of action, our freedom of thought, all these things evaporate. Where will it begin? Where will it end? If one person can influence, influence us, so can 50 or 100 or 1,000. 
If one individual can cause another person to have a loss out of revenge or out of spite, can somebody else cause us to have a loss the same way? Like the old Bruja. If we can pray our enemies to death, can our enemies pray us to death? It just doesn't look so well when we open this mysterious door between the commonplace and the unusual. We step immediately into a world, first of all, a region which we know nothing about. We have no background in our own experience to cope with these intangibles. All we have to work with is a, is a tremendous tendency to fantasy in ourselves, an imagination that can get out of hand even with the commonplace, let alone the unusual and a mind that has very little foundation in any form of essential courage or fact or reasonableness. With a nature, therefore, that is lacking in most of the requirements of prudence and common sense, it is very easy to get deeper and deeper into a world of wonders that can change gradually and inevitably into a world of terrors. It is a rather dangerous situation for the person to suddenly leave behind the landmarks that he has and knows and depends upon and sail out into an uncharted ocean of mystical and occult possibilities. My experience with this type of situation is that 99 out of 100 land in shipwreck before it's over. They might be able to handle the situation with some dignity if they were very wise or very poised or very well integrated. But who ever heard of an individual very poised and very well integrated who ever got mixed up in these things? Nine-tenths of the potential victims of their own foolishness in this direction are themselves neurotic. They are persons whose lives have been in one way or another, unhappy, frustrated, pressure-ridden. They are not thorough scholars. They are not deeply thoughtful individuals, trained thinkers. They are persons who have drifted along through the years, studying a little of this and a little of that, joining this organization and then that organization and most of them in trouble from the mere process of chronic joining. So many of these organizations threaten their members, that if the member leaves for any reason, some dark and mysterious curse will fall upon them. This is enough to wreck a life immediately. The individual living in the 20th century still has the old primordial instinct to be afraid of curses, and afraid of the evil thoughts of others. And the moment we give these evil thoughts a large place in our own thinking, we can begin to feel these thoughts moving in on us. Our lives can become haunted by the mere fears that arise from negative speculations about the unknown. These speculations didn't rise as a result of certain interest in metaphysical matters, 
the individual would probably immediately consider the possibility that he's mentally ill. But if um, this is part of some strange mystical procedure, he doesn't think of himself as ill at all. He thinks of himself as illuminated. He thinks of himself as having reached new dimensions of consciousness. But then these new dimensions of consciousness begin to go to work on him. And uh, before it's over, we realize that he has simply uh, used this strange unknown as a catalyst for his own neurosis. So we can't uh, too strongly recommend that persons be extremely cautious in trying to explore areas where their knowledge is simply insufficient. Now, knowledge in itself is a very good thing. We should know about everything, even things we do not really agree with, or even things we do not want to believe. We should know about them. We should never assume for a moment that ignorance is an asset. There is a great deal of difference, however, between understanding the theories and practices of certain beliefs and the effort to dabble with them ourselves. There is no reason why we shouldn't understand the theories behind transcendentalism if it intrigues us. But there are many reasons why we shouldn't dabble with it. Especially, this is true, where we actually haven't even any very solid groundwork in theory. It's one thing, perhaps, to make some modest experimentation after 20 years of careful study, in which we really have done our own study, not simply taken somebody else's word for it, read a few uh, ancient books or modern reprints. But to approach these things haphazardly, in a strange, childlike faith, that somehow we are going to be protected from our own foolishness. Uh, this simply does not pay off, except in terms of tragedy. Now, one thing that's not too important at this stage of our thinking is whether uh, all this weird and wonderful world is a reality or simply a psychological condition within ourselves. Whether all this magic is a psychic phenomenon or a psychological phenomenon is not perhaps so important at this point. Regardless of which it is, it has the same effect on us. And uh, when we add to this a certain amount of coincidence, a certain amount of inevitable fortuity, we can build up a pretty strong case for things it can be very difficult if we're not careful. For example, we know that the average person who doesn't feel well will likely enough feel better tomorrow. A very large percentage of symptoms, as every doctor knows, are not very valid. That's one of the reasons why maybe a couple of aspirin tablets or something of that kind will permanently remove aggravating symptoms which have no real essential foundation 
uh, in a true bodily condition or warning, a little fatigue perhaps, a little eye strain, uh, a little tension, and we have a headache. We relax and the headache takes care of itself and simply disappears. Now in the same way, for hundreds of years, medicine made use of the bread pill and other simple formulas, the purpose of which was simply to cause the patient to believe that he had been given important medications and the patient completely relieved of his anxiety got well he didn't really need any medication at all this is also the reason why so many patent devices during the middle of the last century were so successful like the magnetic horse blanket and things of this nature this magnetic blanket had absolutely no magnetism whatever associated with it but thousands of people reported amazing and miraculous cures uh, they also announced tremendous results from various uh, herb concoctions and swamp root preparations, the only medicinal element being alcohol. But naturally, it gave a certain note of encouragement, especially if the doses were large and frequent. <laughs> the individual, therefore, if uh, left to his own devices, will very often feel better, at least temporarily. What if an individual who has nothing wrong with him except perhaps a little anxiety mechanism uh, feels that he is being treated for this, uh, that uh, some other person is sending him powerful vibrations, he gets feeling better very quickly, just like he used to get feeling better on Peruna. It was, uh, there was a certain parallel here. And we come finally to really believe that people are doing a lot of these things for us or to us when we're really doing them to or for ourselves. But coincidence also comes in, plays quite a part in some of these things. I've seen it. And in a little while, we come to the conclusion that thoughts are very, very vital things, that we only have to send a few thoughts around. And the whole face of common sense is altered. This goes on for a time. What ends up, what ends is finally the individual becomes seriously ill with something. And perhaps by neglecting it, in the hope of some other form of magical cure, reaches a point where he cannot be saved at all. These things have their mysterious negative factors that we have to watch for constantly. Because faith is a wonderful thing, but when it's put in the wrong place and the wrong things are believed in, it can be very costly in terms of health and happiness in life. One of the simplest uh, examples of what might be termed magic uh, that man has used from the very earliest time is prayer. Now, prayer can be a very wonderful thing for the human being. It has a tremendous potential for good. And yet so few of us can use prayer unselfishly. It is so hard for us to, to really be sincere, even in this. If we really believe that prayer is a power, then this power becomes the basis of a temptation of some nature. Power promises us things. And it's very hard to believe in power without trying to use it uh, to our own advantage or to the disadvantage of someone else. 
I know people who have spent many years praying that misfortunes would come to another person. How we can do a thing like this in the name of God is difficult to understand, but it happens every day. We also have a great number of prayers in which the individual is asking God to take care of things that he should be taking care of himself, not waiting for the infinite to step in and correct a commonplace situation that we should all be able to handle. Therefore, we have prayer which essentially is a relationship with God, transformed into a kind of a basis of a, of a new kind of old age pension or uh, social security. Prayer becomes the basis of the gratification of very commonplace desires. We don't realize we are misusing it. We have the best intentions in the world. But when we start to pray that somebody else is going to let us foreclose a mortgage on them, uh, we're in dangerous ground. We're in very dangerous ground. And when someone stands up and testifies that as a result of prayer they've doubled their income, there's just a little doubt as to whether this is what prayer was intended for. Whether we really have a right to assume that some spiritual force in nature, uh, a force which has, it has as its primary concern the achievement of ultimates, the great infinite patterns of things should be supplicated every time we have a headache or every time we have a, an appetite or a desire which we feel needs gratification. This, uh, this type of use uh, seems to lead us away from the essential integrity of life. And when we pray that somebody else shall be over-influenced in some way or another, uh, what about the other person? What about the individual who lost money so that our income could be doubled? Did the universe turn on him for our benefit? Was our prayer a means of dishonestly acquiring that which did not belong to us? Most people won't even bother to ask the question. They, they don't care how it's fulfilled as long as they get what they want. But can we assume that the universe operates this way? And if we're willing to assume this, what happens to our own relationship with every problem of existence? The moment we take the honesty out of the universe anywhere, we take it out everywhere. Either there are principles and rules in this world, or there are not. And if there are rules, we cannot break them, and we shouldn't try. And if there are no rules, uh, then our entire ethical life collapses, and we have no hope or no reasonable expectation of any kind of good end or constructive purpose in our own existence. The old Greeks brought this question under consideration, and the, um, one of them asked Pythagoras uh, how a man should pray. The old Greek replied, uh, never pray for what you, for anything. Don't pray for the fulfillment of any desire, because if you pray hard enough, your desire may be fulfilled and may be the destruction of you. In other words, we all know what we want, but only heaven knows what we need. 
and uh, where we begin to decide what we want and use various esoteric ways of getting what we want. We are defying that universal pattern which alone knows what we need. Therefore, it would appear that prayer has a function, it has a purpose, it has a reason. But that reason is not the fulfillment of commonplace desires. Prayer is a mystic relationship with life. It is man finding the source of his strength in a regular communion with the heavenly power that creates all things. Nearly all ancient prayers were hymns of praise, hymns of thankfulness and gratitude. It was very rare indeed to find in ancient or primitive prayers anyone asking for anything. It was the person uh, simply uh, stating in simple conviction his realization of the wonders of life the blessings he enjoyed, the wonderful privileges that he had. And he gave thanks to heaven for the sun and the moon and the earth and the seasons and the harvest. He was not asking, he was thanking. And prayers of this nature are pretty safe prayers because they do not involve any interference in the processes or order or reason of life itself. One thing I think is a very important, whether it be in mentalism or in anything else, in prayer or anything that even uh, seems to suggest a metaphysical factor anywhere in our action, and that is that whatever thought we think, Whatever message we send, whatever prayer we say, uh, that let us have at least one regulation on it, namely, that it be beautiful. Let it always be good. Let it always be something that if it so happened, that it returned to us, we would be glad that it had returned that there is nothing in it whatever that could be hurtful or harmful or evil, that we ask nothing of another person, exercise no influence over another person, except to bless them, to wish them well, and to hope them the strength to be themselves, asking that they do nothing for us or because we want them to, but asking only that they have the insight and the understanding uh, to live true to their own highest principles. If we are very, very careful uh, to keep ulteriorness out of our thinking, we do not have to live with the consequences of it sometime in the future. But just as we have taken every new and beautiful discovery that man has made and finally used it to hurt man, so even the most simple and beautiful and gracious thoughts that perhaps we start with all too often are twisted around to find some advantage for ourselves or disadvantage to others. In times of war, 
both armies pray for victory. This cannot be. In all the problems of life, we seek to call upon a divine aid uh, for the advancement of some human concern. And this advancement is nearly always selfish. So another very safe rule in connection with all transcendentalism is to take the self out of it. I think this was the burden of uh, Buddhism. Buddha, of course, lived in India. The Brahmins and Hindus of his time practiced magical rites. They called upon the gods. They invoked spirits. And they did many other things of this nature. Buddha warned against it, as also in Greece did Pythagoras. He warned against it on the ground that all of these rites and rituals had something to do with the gratification of man. That the individual wanted power, he wanted wealth, he wanted security. And even when he uh, Faust-like bound some elemental to his services, as in the old legends, it was always in order to gain some gratification for his own ambitions or desires. One of the ways to take the blackness out of magic is to take the selfishness out of it. And in the ancient religions there was a kind of wonderful divine magic, the magic of illumination, the magic of insight and enlightenment, this mysterious and wonderful magic by which man seemed able at times to come into the presence of his God, to stand in the transcendency of the divine principle, to enjoy or to participate in a, in a wonderful experience was sometimes called cosmic consciousness. This kind of a diviner magic in which self plays no part is one perhaps a form of the transcendent uh, which may be permissible. But uh, the rule I think is safe to follow is that man is in danger whenever he is selfish. And the greater the skill of his selfishness, the greater the danger he is in. And if he uses any esoteric or magical means to gratify selfishness, then he is definitely practicing black magic. And black magic is a magic that uh, perhaps is not so black in itself as that it opens the individual to the blackness of fear opens him finally to a strange abyss in which he is captured in the very conspiracies which he would turn against others. There can be no uh, ultimate security in anything that is essentially selfish. So when we pray, let us pray as selfless beings, uh, praying for the common good, not even trying to define what that good is, but perhaps uh, building into the concept of our prayer, our meditation, our contemplation, whatever it may be, that wonderful saying, a wonderful statement that seems to be so protective of all good, when turning to God in communion and asking anything of the divine, let us always include that thought, 
not my will but thine be done. As long as we do not force will, as long as we do not impose our will upon purpose, as long as we do not stand arrogantly, because our will indicates our conviction that we know and we do not know, as long as we are not arrogant, much will be forgiven us. But in our arrogance, we pitch ourselves into adversity. Always, therefore, our own purposes, our will, our appetites, our instincts, our ambitions must be subservient to the great cycle of laws under which we exist. Man lives in a universe of cause and effect under the great laws of causality and alternation and harmony and rhythm. Man should not under any condition build into his life any concept which would inspire him to violate law. He should not set himself against natural law. He should ask for nothing that he is not able to earn. And he should in no way attempt to force any condition in nature by which he attempts to evade that which is his natural and proper destiny. If man must pray for something, as Buddha points out, let him pray for enlightenment. Let him pray that the only desire that is desirable is the desire for truth itself. Not the truth we want, but the truth that is. Not the truth we prattle about day by day, but the truth of those infinite principles which we can only dimly comprehend. We may not know what the truth is of a situation, but we have the right to inwardly pray that that truth shall reveal itself according to its own purposes, whether those purposes help us or not, whether they fulfill any desire of ours or, perhaps, go entirely contrary to our wishes. The thing is, what is the truth? And whatever that truth is, with that we must live. And we must hope that in the face of truth we will have the courage to live according to it, and not according to any compromise that may arise in our own nature. From the dawn of our history, men have struggled to dominate each other, to take away the works and profits of other men. They have conquered nations and spoiled and pillaged the earth. Everywhere the individual he tries to use strength to dominate the lives of others by means of strength, by intimidation, by fear, by outnumbering or outwitting, the individual has tried to deprive others of their natural rights. Out of this procedure has come the entire tragedy of civilization, a tragedy which continues today as it has from the beginning. And we cannot assume that any mysterious power which man may develop shall be considered as different 
from any material power by which an individual seeks to gain advantage over another. There is no difference except, perhaps, in the detailed construction of the instrument. But whether we try to take a man's goods from him with a gun or with a thought, we have committed precisely the same offense. Whenever we try to over-influence him, uh, we are doing the same thing uh, that we would in any action or procedure in which we lure another person into an unfavorable situation in order to cheat him, betray him, or deprive him of something. In fact, as we study the situation more carefully, we realize that just as our actions have their rewards according to their motivations and their values, that the perversion of wisdom, the perversion of insight, the perversion of spiritual resource is perhaps one of the greater crimes and carries with it one of nature's heaviest penalties. Actually, we are far worse off as living beings. If we steal from a man by influencing his mind, uh, then we are if we break into his house at night and rob him of his goods. We have committed a different kind of offense. In robbery, we have used common means. Perhaps the man was careless and didn't close his doors properly. Uh, perhaps also we were using the ignorance of our own lives in which we didn't really know any better. But where we use anything that has to do with sacred matters, anything that has to do with the immediate presence of the divine in any of its aspects, we are committing a peculiar and terrible evil. Therefore, to pervert the mystical powers of meditation, concentration, and prayer, such perversion carries a far heavier penalty uh, than that of physical robbery. We have now uh, created a situation which has gone into our psychic entity. Uh, we have dabbled with something which can destroy life and reason and every part of our natures. Therefore, we must be extremely slow and cautious in this type of thing. Now, we don't want to spend our entire time pointing out all of these mistakes that people can make because there are other phases of this situation. And we have to stop to consider the individuals who get into trouble who are absolutely sincere. Uh, many cases uh, that come along relating to psychic problems have not really their origin in any instinct to malpractice. They have many times their origin in the individual's desperate desire to grow. He assumes that growth means for him solution of something. He does have the one weak spot, the heel of Achilles, which has made it possible for him to get into trouble. In his desire to grow, he is usually looking for some kind of a shortcut. He is looking for some kind of a mysterious key 
that will open for him an understanding or insight otherwise not available. So he is really seeking just a little bit selfishly and just a teeny weeny bit dishonestly, but he doesn't know it himself. He assumes in this case that the end justifies the means. He assumes that illumination is the end to which man is intended, and that anything that contributes toward this is good, regardless of the detailed considerations involved. So we have the individual, and it doesn't make any difference where he is or what school he belongs to. Every religious, mystical, and philosophical sect has had exactly the same difficulty from the beginning of time. It is the person who really believes that the esoteric truths of life are some kind of a secret, and that it is possible to find the key, buy it, steal it, beg it, borrow it, do some way to get it. And that by means of this key, we can suddenly, to borrow a phrase from alchemy, unlock the shut door of the palace of the king. That there is some way, uh, a way in which spirituality uh, can be wonderfully augmented within the individual by some methodology. And of course, years ago, we had a deluge of methodologies. Uh, today, they are not so frequent, but there are some pretty intensive ones still left. And people are sometimes wrong in their judgment of these groups. Uh, they, are, they misunderstand teaching that is intended well, or perhaps the teaching itself is not well stated or well integrated and does not protect the student adequately. So we have a great many people who are in trouble simply because they are trying to be better than they know how to be. And that can get you into complications. This is one of the points that I have emphasized for very, very many years. That the average person cannot handle uh, the development or release of so-called metaphysical values or factors or forces within his own nature. He does not know when a development is legitimate and when it is not. And he does not know where some time, type of mystical experience begins and some type of wishful thinking leaves off. He just does not know. He cannot really tell the difference between a vision and a dream. He has no way of knowing the difference. For that matter, he doesn't know the difference between a dream and a nightmare. There uh, are many strange and difficult situations that the person cannot cope with. The moment his mind is, is separated from the commonplace, the landmarks about which he is reasonably certain, he wanders into a mist and mystery which he cannot evaluate. He really doesn't know what he's doing. Now, there should not be this kind of situation. People should not be encouraged or permitted 
to get into these difficulties. But we can't do very much about it now because the trouble started a long time ago. Back in the gradual collapse of classical culture, the various esoteric arts and sciences of the temples were profaned. These secrets were brought out, uh, initiates broke their obligations, or some even under torture uh, confessed or described things which they should not have discussed. In any event, little by little, what used to be a very carefully guarded way of life uh, became available uh, through uh, the dishonesty or the treachery of members or uh, novices in these subjects, and uh, the old mystery sciences came into the common possession of mankind. Of course, some good was accomplished. It wasn't all bad. For from the temple we got mathematics and astronomy and chemistry and music, geography and history. Practically every science we know was originally part of this secret wisdom. Those sciences which we could turn and apply to the common advancements of mankind have helped, but because they were advanced without the obligations of the ancient temple, most of the secular branches of knowledge have become utterly corrupted, and all knowledge is now used selfishly. Whereas in the older times, the obligations were such that the possessors of knowledge were bound to right use. This no longer exists as a general policy, unless the person by his own high morality makes a voluntary obligation. But some of the other more secret and mysterious arts were brought out of their ancient symbolisms and from the early sanctuaries of the mysteries. Pandora's box was opened. All types of psychic and magical phenomena came to be a little better known and a little better understood than was wise. But the great over-science of which it was a part the great dedications to the temple, which once protected it, the long periods of purification and preparation, which once led to the revelation of it, all of these guards and protectors were lost. And the individual uh, was in much the same condition that we were when we discovered nuclear fission and had in our hands the greatest power that man has ever materially possessed, and practically no ethical structure to direct the use of it. This was a situation that was uh, rather serious. And as far as the private citizen is concerned, the esoteric arts are just as dangerous as nuclear fission. He can get himself into a private dilemma just as easily as the world could be forced into a dilemma uh, by an atomic war. But without the guides and guards around these practices, we developed a whole series of popular systems by which the individual really tried, quite sincerely, uh, to advance his own internal life. He was convinced that somewhere inside of himself was a god, a tremendous power, 
and that this divine principle within him was stronger than his personality, stronger than his mind and his emotions and his body, and that in some way there was a great security, a great uh, sufficiency to be achieved if man could explore this inner nature of himself and come finally into union with the divine power at the source of his own being. Thus systems and schools were set up for the exploration of these secret processes. The theory was legitimate. The procedures were to varying degrees legitimate. Some quite definitely had strong good points. Others had very few good points. Many of the names that were used to identify these systems were ancient and honorable, belonged to great schools of the past. Some were out of fabrications and proclamations of the mysteries. Who knew? Who was able to tell which was genuine and which was not genuine? Not one in ten thousand became involved in these various procedures. Everybody had to believe somebody, and most people believed the wrong people. So we had more trouble. Trouble because of sincerity, finally. But trouble because sincerity was not very smart, not very wise in its attitude toward these matters. Every day, whenever a new system comes along, there's somebody who jumps into it, gets himself into trouble, and uh, gives the whole theory a bad name. Always the same problem is involved. Every great system of enlightenment the world has ever known has accepted the essential inevitability of universal law. The great disciplines of the mysteries were based upon the law of cause and effect, just as much as the most common occurrences of living. And all of the great steps and stages of the development of man's inner life, these degrees of development were the results or effects of causes, and the causes had to be right, and they had to be exact, and they had to be complete or the effects would not be uh, what, was what was required or expected or hoped for. So in the whole theory of man's spiritual growth, all growth arose from the unfoldment of personal integrity. The beginning of all mystical discipline was the purification of the individual's life. Purification did not mean to uh, imply that the individual could get nowhere unless he was spotless. Purification meant that the search for reality had to be genuine. It had to be real. It had to represent a dedication to principle. It certainly had to mean that the common difficulties which beset us have to be met and understood and fulfilled according to the workings of law. 
So we have today a great many people who are trying desperately to develop certain extrasensory perceptions. Most of them get in trouble. They get in trouble for, for many reasons. First, because they do not understand how to develop anything. They have to hope. They have to pray. They have to follow some strange, mysterious pattern and have some kind of faith that it will work. Now, many times, of course, they are following patterns given them by others. And here, we frequently hear the wonderful accounts of the secret instructions that folks have received. And many of these instructions are appalling. Uh, they represent the most colossal ignorance and effrontery on someone's part. I've checked a great many of these wonderful revelations of how to develop extrasensory powers, how to become an adept in five or ten lessons, how to uh, look through solid walls and see what's going on on the other side, how to multiply the family fortune, make friends, influence people, dominate situations, almost anything you want. But even apart from these, which some folks are a little too smart to fall for anymore, there are uh, these mysterious procedures which are supposed to be shortcuts to the infinite, by which the individual is all the quicker and the... Uh, uh, more simply directed uh, to some type of illumination or mystical experience. I have tracked down a great many of them. Uh, sometimes they're in pamphlets and literature. Sometimes they're carefully guarded secrets communicated only uh, from one person to another under the most direful obligations. But where did they come from in the first place? Where do these instructions originate? And I have checked a great many of them, and nearly all of them begin in somebody else's psychical aberration. That is the 100% causing ground for most of them. You finally get the individual who apparently was the pioneer in this particular form of the matter. You pin them down as to where they got this secret discipline that was to save the world, who told them, uh, what uh, secret or ancient society did they belong to, uh, where was the line of descent on this knowledge, where did the information come from. And in almost every instance, this information was something that had been given to them in a dream in a nightmare, in a bad moment of some kind. Often it was nothing but a slightly twisted paraphrase of something they had read. But they hadn't consciously taken this thing they had read and passed it on as their own. They really hadn't. But they had been reading about it for some time, and one night they dreamt about it. And it got a few extra flourishes in the processes of the dream, and the next morning, a new religion was born. <laughs> and this is how it started. And people, quite convinced of the sincerity of the source, and the person at the beginning probably 
actually rather sincere. Everybody in trouble within six months. Because the situation was not bonafide, there was nothing. The only way in which the individual could get anywhere with the instructions he was receiving was to develop so powerful an imagination that he had hallucinations of progress relating to himself. He could imagine himself to be illuminated. In fact, if he was real good at it, he could have a dream somewhere also in which the cosmos opened up and he found himself seated in the midst of the infinite. But the whole thing ended up in a dream. It ended up in a in a strange, negative, psychic situation. Well, you can say if it made the person happy and didn't do anybody else any harm and uh, everyone seemed to be getting along a little better than they had before, why upset the apple cart? If that's what they want to believe, we live in a land where you can believe almost anything you want, why not uh, let them go on believing? Well, if it went along nicely like this and everything remained happy, that wouldn't be perhaps so bad a situation. But it never goes that way. In a very short time, the false doctrines, the false ideas, uh, the, the stupid situations that arise begin to create complications. The individual who thinks he is illumined insists on illuminating other people. He doesn't know much himself, and by the time it passes on to a number of others, it's worse than when he got it. He begins to uh, have pre-warning of various events. He frightens people to death. He has visions of uh, what is going to happen to the universe, the political system, and the neighborhood. This becomes very complicated. And also, little by little, he becomes a metaphysical aristocrat <laughs> on his own part. There is this note of infallibility about him. After he's had this a little while, he loses his family, his relatives, and his friends, who cannot put up with this concept of an infallible person who is making as many mistakes as he ever made, but isn't admitting them anymore. The individual suddenly discovers, or doesn't discover, but others discover for him, that he has stepped out of the stream of life's experience. He has new and fancy meanings for everything that happens. These meanings are no longer of any use to him in helping him to grow. As one individual told me, he said, why should I experience how to grow? I've already reached perfection. <laughs> it's a marvelous way to feel about things. But as far as this person was concerned, they were the only one who had the slightest suspicion that they had reached perfection. This same person who was perfect was the same grand old gossip they'd ever been. This person had the same antagonisms, the same prejudices, the same uh, fanaticisms that they had always had. Their temper was just as bad as ever. The only difference is that they had the same faults, but now they were blind to them, and this is no improvement. 
Or, as one individual explained to me, who had a certain rather bad dispositional problem that they had worked with for a number of years before they had become illuminated, uh, I asked them how they were getting along with this old problem that they had been fighting with for years, and they looked at me rather scornfully and assured me that a nasty temper was one of the proofs of advancement. <laughs> How foolish can you get? And they believed it. Little by little, all perspective was gone. Now, this isn't helpful. The individual keeps on going along this way until a situation arises in which they come face to face with an emergency in which the only solution would lie in the fact they were what they thought they were. That they did possess sufficient insight and understanding to solve a major issue. When this emergency arises, the issue is not solved, because they haven't what it takes to solve it. Sometimes there is a very bitter disillusionment. It's a horrible thing to suddenly wake up and realize you've been studying for 20 years something that isn't so. Very discouraging. Also that in the moment when all these things were supposed to produce their miracles, nothing happened. There are these bitter and painful experiences. And we see that the person who starts off on one of these tangents never knows where he's going to end. Unfortunately, too many of them end with mental breakdowns. They become so involved, so tied up, they can't possibly solve the situation. Another painful interlude that most of these persons come in contact with is the fact that they are so right and nobody else sees it. This is very unfortunate. They know that they are creatures of destiny, but the world won't accept them. Under such pressure as this, they become antisocial, turn against the world. Uh, they, they feel that they are being persecuted simply because they're not agreed with. This can get to be a very serious source of mental and emotional stress. Almost everything that arises from these false, basic attitudes become in turn. Almost everything that arises from these false, basic attitudes taking the life away from the simple dignities, the simple humanities, that make things valuable. If, therefore, you are not careful, you can get into trouble. Now, here's another general phase of the matter which also has its problems, and that is the effect upon health. We've spoken about uh, a little about the emotional and mental stress of these situations. Now let's speak about the physical. The, uh, the possible damage that is done physically as a result of some of these procedures. Nearly all metaphysical practices involve a certain amount of stress, 
they create various kinds of fixed tensions of one kind or another. Most forms of concentration will do this in time. The individual, whether he realizes it or not, subjects his nervous system, particularly the autonomic system, to a tremendous amount of stress. The moment the confusion is set up in our relationships with life, the nervous system begins to flutter. Because the nervous system is very close to fear, anxiety, uncertainty, unreasonable hope, and the ups and downs of one minute of despair and the next minute of exaltation, the individual believing everything one moment and nothing the next moment, uh, more or less disoriented much of the time, and becoming more and more hypersensitive, more and more defensive, uh, because he is increasingly misunderstood by everybody else. Little by little, his life becomes miserable, unhappy, unadjusted, tension-ridden, stress-torn. And in a very reasonable length of time, the physical situation begins to reveal itself. It is very hard for the person to be under fear, anxiety, or intense imagination without punishing the bodily structure too much. So these people begin to experience lack of normal body functions. Respiration may become erratic. Various forms of uh, tacticardia may develop. Elimination may get very bad. And uh, most of all, we have the person who develops what I have often referred to as psychic flutters. This is an ailment in itself which is almost uniquely uh, due uh, to a psychosomatic symbolism. It is the gradual development within the personality of strange, unexplainable miseries, as we used to call them, uh, particularly in the Deep South. They were often referred to as miseries sometimes a little further north as agonies. But in any case, uh, they were difficulties. Where most uh, persons who have these psychic problems report strange feelings. They report uh, motions moving inside of them. Something like uh, nerve uh, filaments crawling under the skin. Uh, they describe uh, something resembling the grand symbolism of the metaphors. Almost any mysterious, eccentric, uncomfortable, distressing feeling. They will have all the cold chills and hot flashes there are in the book. They will feel things moving up and down their spines, think their eyes are crossed, have trouble in swallowing, strange, mysterious, moving migraines in various parts of the body. 
They will develop symptoms of arthritis one moment and of arteriosclerosis the next. They have many of them. But they are suffering from palpitations, flutterations, and everything you can think of. And they are sure, almost certain, that these different things all indicate the presence of some kinds of strange entities that are creeping up at them when they're not looking, scratching them when they're trying to relax, whispering unpleasant words into their ears when they're trying to sleep, tormenting their rest with dreams and visions that are not nice and not pleasant, and creating every kind of a nerve reflex that people do not enjoy. This is a very common group of symptoms. I could list hundreds of related symptoms in this area, but I think we have summed it up sufficiently to point out the general theme. To these people, all of these symptoms seem to signify the presence of some other entity, being, force, nature, or substance affecting them. Perhaps they think that some of these mysterious feelings are other people's thoughts bouncing off of them, or something. But as always, this type of thing begins to develop. I think the real answer to it is a gradual psychosomatic transference of total confusion. The individual has lost completely orientation. And perhaps if we can imagine that the nervous system under such complete uh, psychic breakdown simply loses its own rhythms and its own orderly processes and begins to take on some similitude of the prevailing uh, lack of organization and integration. In any event, we find that a large amount of psychic phenomena ends up with this. Sometimes it gets so bad that there seems to be very little you can do for it. The, uh, the one thing that might help you can't do in the majority of instances, and that is get the individual to change his own mental habits. By this time, he is so convinced that he has no power over the situation that all he wants is a sorcerer to get rid of demons for him. He doesn't have any realization that these symptoms indicate the breakdown of his own natural integration. He is not mentally ill. He is physically disturbed, symbolically. All the mysterious doubts and wonders and hopes and anxieties that developed psychically are now playing themselves out nervously in the functions of the body. And this is an unpleasant thing to have happen. And the moment anybody feels any of these symptoms, stop worrying about what other people are doing to you and start organizing your own resources as quickly as you can. By organizing your own resources, I mean simply get your mind on practical, workable levels of action, 
Train your thinking, control your emotions by natural and reasonable outlets and get your mind off of being spiritual. Because if you don't, you're going to have more trouble. Obviously, an individual in this condition is not spiritual. Therefore, whatever method has been used to get into trouble is not the method they should be following if they wish to become wise. So there's no use continuing the present policy. It is obviously wrong or the individual wouldn't be in trouble all the time. This, again, is a problem that affects good people, people who have tried very hard, but who have lost a certain sense of security. They have been thrown out into a universe that is too big for them, and they weren't smart enough to swim to shore as quickly as possible. And most of these people must learn to swim to shore. And to start all over again in the effort to establish a basic groundwork for self-improvement. We often find that uh, other factors do contribute to this situation. Nearly every religious organization and most people involved in them become gradually more or less unnatural in their personal ways of living. They get into trouble this way also, unfortunately. We have all kinds of trick diets. We have all kinds of special exercises. We have individuals forcibly removed or deprived of the common expressions of life which have been theirs over a period of years. We find them gradually developing various frustrations on the ground that the more frustrated they are, the more spiritual they are. This is a good way to get good and sick quick because the human being cannot uh, take these inconsistent procedures without having some background for them. Now, it is true that every so often you will find a hermit or a, an old saint in legend, lore, or actual history, perhaps, who has gone away into the desert, into the mountains, or into the forest, and there built his hermitage, and has lived peacefully and quietly apart from the concerns of man, and has practiced his Tao or his Zen or his Yoga for half a lifetime in perfect peace and tranquility. Nothing unfortunate ever happened to him so far as we know, but sometimes we're not quite sure how far we know. But at the same time, the rumors are that he's done well. Now, this is all right. It's quite understandable. There are people like this in every human society. There are individuals who are born for the cloisters and are never happy till they go there. There are people who have always wanted to live strange lives of unselfish dedication to other people. They're really most content in some field of religious service. They have no strong attachments to worldliness. They find material living uncomfortable and unpleasant, 
They do not want to run away into doing nothing, so they would rather live in a dedicated service to some cause. And many of these people are very useful, and they do wonderful jobs. But they are generally useful and do well under the strong supervision of a system. And they become teachers of the young, or nurses of the sick, or guardians of the aged, or something of this nature. But they live and function, and their religious life is dedicated to rather practical, commonplace labors, which they perform in the name of their higher spiritual ideals. Well, this, uh, in many instances, works out very well. But to take everyone, to take people from here and there and everywhere, and impose these kind of restrictions on them, will most certainly end in psychological and probably physical uh, disorder. These people are not so constituted that such a program is reasonable or practical for them. This is what happened in the development of Buddhism, where the southern school divided from the northern school. The southern school taught distinctly and definitely that there was only one way to achieve illumination, and that was to leave the world completely, utterly, and immediately, and never come back again. To turn from the common life to the robe, to give up every possession, to give up every attachment, to give up every worldly attitude, and even every worldly responsibility, and go out with a begging bowl and one small square of cloth, and keep on wandering and meditating, until consciousness or death uh, ended the procedure. This was not, however, the Buddhism that gradually uh, unfolded the great arts, the great cultures, the great mystics and idealists of the Mahayana system. Uh, man gradually came to realize that somehow the great spiritual truths had to be brought within the range of his common life. It became necessary for him to think of the way of liberation for the householder, that the father and mother with children and family and business had to have their part in this great pattern of enlightenment, that it wasn't to leave everything and to depart into the unknown but in some mysterious way to increase in grace, insight, and understanding every day, to find in the commonplace the source of enlightenment and inspiration, and also to realize that for the majority of mankind, simple idealistic devotion to principles was the wisest and best way to grow that sometimes if the person had the internal um, requisites, if he had brought forward with him from some previous life a degree of insight that called for the development of some extrasensory perception, it would come in due time of itself. And of course, in the northern Buddhist system, that was the last thing anybody asked for or expected. They did not practice their religion in the hopes that some initiation or mystical experience would occur to them. 
They practiced their religion because they believed that their religion was the proper way of life. That if they lived this and lived it well and kept the law, they would fulfill their responsibility to God and themselves. The whole purpose underlying this religious philosophy was not the unfoldment of the individual primarily. It was obedience to the law, the glorification of truth by keeping its rules and principles, and keeping them unselfishly, not in hope of enlightenment, but because this was the proper labor of an enlightened human being. Under such conditions, we do know that there were mystics, and great mystics arise among these different groups. But these mystics were persons who had slowly unfolded. They had lived each step of the common life. They had grown skillful and wise in the philosophy of the doctrine. They had gone out and dedicated themselves to the service of others over long periods of time. They had gained practical insight as working with the sick and as helping to solve the problems of the burdened. They had become the counselors of rulers and the friends of princes. They had helped in the creation of good laws. They had helped to perfect arts and sciences. Many of them actually gave skills to their peoples. And Kobodaishi, who was one of the great monks of the Shingongshu in Japan, is accredited with having given almost as many inventions to the Japanese people as Leonardo da Vinci gave to Europe. A tremendous genius in his own right. He was not a person who had uh, simply decided to be spiritual. He had worked and labored and studied. He had lived with the wives. He made the long and at that time dangerous journey to China in order to uh, come closer to the great seats of the doctrines. He was a master of knowledge, one of the most uh, perfectly informed men of his time and still regarded as one of the most enlightened men of Asia. These people grew sincerely. They, they gave everything they had to growth. And they grew not just simply for the sake of being wise themselves, but that they might become the founders of essential and practical movements and organizations. There were great mathematicians, great artists, great musicians, poets, men of literature and letters. And out of the, uh, the temples and the shrines and the sanctuaries came the great arts, uh, the great uh, modelings and sculpturings, the casting in bronze and in silver. These people were highly skilled. Uh, they took the attitude that the more able they became in everyday labor, the more completely they were able to express their spiritual convictions. So that uh, they worked with the law. They became better, realizing that the reward of being better is to know more. The reward of greater daily virtue is enlightenment. That there are really no tricks in this thing at all. By the time they reached the point 
as in Zenshu or in the Shingonshu or Tendaishu, where certain esoteric disciplines were recommended or given to them by their teachers. Uh, these disciples were so well grounded in every principle of ethics, in their knowledge of the universal structure and the operations of all the laws of nature, that it would be virtually impossible for them to make a mistake. They had all the groundwork in, all the principles thoroughly established. Usually uh, in Zen, uh, not much of an esoteric nature was divulged under 20 years of discipleship. And that discipleship was more rigorous than anything that we can imagine. It was constant self-analysis, the breaking down of every illusion and delusion in consciousness. And by the time uh, the disciple was ready to go on, he had truly cleaned his own inner life. It was, it was well-disciplined and well-ordered. People that have this degree of insight can probably be trusted, and you seldom have ever hear anyone in this type of level of activity who ever perverted what he knew or contributed to the corruption of anyone else. These people knew, and they were able to use their knowledge wisely. What we are worried about constantly and, and stricken about so often is the dabbler, the one who really tries, but simply doesn't even have a comprehension of what he's trying. To him, uh, a few lessons and a couple of books, and he's well on his way to nirvana. Uh, it just doesn't operate that way. This does not mean, however, that the individual cannot grow. He can grow continuously. But he has to grow uh, with a dedication, not an enthusiasm alone. He has to grow uh, along the line which is the most difficult of all forms, and that is self-discipline and self-control. I know more people who have tried to be spiritual without taking hold of their own lives. They can do almost anything you can imagine except what they should be doing and that is controlling and directing their own conduct. These people are perfectly willing to devote a great deal of time to uh, wandering about the cosmos, but they cannot be patient as people. They do not know how. They cannot really be thoughtful. I know many of them that cannot even be commonly courteous. There is no attention to personal character. This is something to be left behind, to be curdled, uh, to be uh, considered fit only for persons of less spiritual insight. There is no spiritual insight apart from character. There is no safe mystical experience apart from character. There is no possibility of man exploring the inner universe of value safely unless his own integrity is completely established. Any other course of procedure is bound to lead ultimately to difficulty. And because no one but the individual himself knows the degree of his insight, 
each person has to come to some way of judging these things. Uh, you cannot tell him that he uh, isn't ready. He will keep on going around until he finds someone else who tells him he is ready. And um, this goes on and on because the person wants to believe that he's on the verge of enlightenment. He doesn't want to be told he hasn't started yet. So you can't uh, convince people against the will. And yet, uh, because of this peculiar uh, type of religious thinking that has developed, uh, people just get themselves into trouble and have no way out. And by the time they realize the degree of their trouble, the very persons who got them into the trouble can't do a thing for them. So they wander about hoping for someone who can perform a miracle and rescue them from the dilemma into which they have gotten themselves. But this time, perhaps they do have a little experience. It will serve them in good stead in due time, but at the moment they're in a very uncomfortable state about the whole thing. So we can only profoundly warn the individual uh, that when he starts dabbling with mysterious things, he must either have the consciousness to handle these things, or he should leave them alone. And no one who is frightened out of his wits by every psychic wind that blows is in a condition to handle the problem. No one who has to seek help is in a condition to handle it. Therefore, if this situation seems to be developing, there can be only one answer. Get out of it as quickly as you possibly can and get your feet back on the ground again. Uh, use the simple ways. Realize that this whole problem of what you might term psychic involvement is only possible at all because basically the person is not capable of thinking uh, with true wisdom. He isn't able to really think straight. Somewhere, weaknesses of his own have contributed to the fact that he was deceived or has deceived himself. It has to start with this. From that point on, all perspective can be lost, and the situation can just be a long, terrible hurt with no really, apparently, satisfactory explanation. But in the beginning, the person had to be foolish. And the only answer is to stop being foolish as quickly as you can. There are ways in which some damage in this area can be rescued, or can the individual can be pulled out of his problem. We realize that as the problem gets worse, as the individual advances in some form of psychic persecution, which is more and more difficult for him to get off of his own mind, he is inevitably becoming neurotic. He is becoming fear-ridden. 
Even if he hasn't reached a degree of hallucination, it may come any moment. He is certainly, uh, actually frightened. He is living in fear. The whole thing has become a phobia. And this phobia is nursed. Fear is nursed by fear. The more he worries about his fears, the more he thinks about his fears, the more he waits for new symptoms to appear, the more frightened he will become. And if this goes on, especially if the individual is alone, perhaps living alone, where there is very little contact with other people, too much loneliness to begin with, which may have been a contributing cause in the first place, then this person must either make a valiant break with the situation where he finds himself, or he will not get out of the difficulty. And unfortunately, it is not a difficulty that will cure itself, nor will it get better unless something is done about it. Realizing, therefore, that as in the case of nearly all forms of neurosis, which may come from other causes, there is too much self-attention. Uh, the mind and emotions are focused upon the dilemmas of the self constantly. This means that little by little it becomes a 24-hour vigil of psychic self-defense against the unknown. The individual doesn't dare sleep. He doesn't dare do anything because of this constantly increasing pressure of fear, a pressure that is usually accompanied by psychosomatic symptoms that seem so real that there is no way apparently of explaining them except to assume that the psychic persecution is real itself. Under this combination we have a hard, vicious circle which is extremely difficult to break. The best way that we can solve it is by starting out with the assumption that a pattern is no stronger than its weakest link. The situation is a pattern. If we can break it somewhere, we perhaps can break it everywhere. If we can put new factors into the problem or take old factors out of it, if we can shift the point of view if we can change the psychic chemistry in some way, then the individual may be able to handle it himself from there on. So we have common things that we try to do to help people of this, in this type of problem. We try to find out anything that they are doing that is unnatural, unreasonable, or likely to contribute to the trouble. If these people are starving themselves to death in the name of religion, we suggest a square meal, but that it be taken slowly, because otherwise they may have dyspepsia. If these individuals have been practicing some form of syncopated breathing or something of this nature, they must stop it, or the situation will not change. If these people have left the world because it is so materialistic and so unspiritual that it is constantly hurting their very, very subtle etheric bodies, 
we suggest strongly they go back in the world and reestablish contact. That they've got to get out and get back in those good old low vibrations again because the high ones are killing them. <laughs> if these people have no interest in life whatsoever except waiting for the next psychic phenomena, we strongly recommend other interests. And we particularly recommend some form of activity which disciplines. If these people are retired on an income or are divorced and living on alimony and don't have to work, they're in a especially bad spot. These people have to decide that they have to work. They have to come to the conclusion that no matter what they have or how much security they enjoy, they will destroy themselves if they are not usefully occupied. We find then the importance of these people training some part of their natures. And the result shows how badly this training is needed, for so frequently... These people are completely unable to take up any line of self-discipline without a massive struggle. These individuals cannot go back to school and take some adult education work. It's too monotonous. In other words, they cannot say to themselves, I expect to do this and I will do it. It's part of the very evidence of the trouble they got into. But you've got to get them out of it. They have to have new interests, new activities, practical outlets. They have to take up studies. They have to discipline themselves. If you want to play the piano, you discipline yourself. If you're suffering from a bad psychological or psychic condition, if you're unable to control uh, these vibrations that uh, may or may not be entities, it is simply because of lack of discipline. If you will discipline yourself somewhere, it will show all over you. Therefore, if we can get this individual who has never made up their own mind clearly on any subject in their entire lives, but who thinks they're just on the suburbs of heaven, if you can get this individual to go out and study music for five years, doing scales for the first three and, will, and insisting that their own hands and their own minds will do this. Or if you can get them into a group of Sumi painters and make them learn to make circles and bamboo joints on paper with black ink for three years before they're allowed to put a leaf on them, these people get well. Why? Because they have suddenly learned that they can make their minds and emotions do what is required of them. The person becomes positive. He has some accomplishment. He has some ability. In the, it usually takes from one to three months for a discipline to become a fascinating thing. The first two or three months, it is drudgery. But if a person really has some qualities within his own nature, he will develop a growing interest 
in the new things that are of interest or value to him. So if he can hold on for two or three months, the subjects will probably take over a large part of his habit mechanism. He will then go on and find that he has learned how to learn. If he will do this and gradually develop disciplines, he will then be able to turn these disciplines to the direct problems that are probleming him. He will be able to turn these disciplines to fear. He will find that he is able to control fear in himself. He will be able to control his own spiritual ambitions and realize that he's probably not quite ready for nirvana. He will be able to recognize that it is possible for him to go home into an empty house, perhaps, and build there a world of interesting values because he has become an interesting person. It is from ourselves that the environment in which we live must radiate. If we are negative, the environment is negative and afflicts us. If we are dynamic in ourselves, the environment in which we find our daily living becomes itself a dynamic source of inspiration. Everywhere the individual achieves his spiritual integration by becoming master of his own instincts, appetites, impulses, and fears. So if we can create in the person new interests, if we can cause this person to become more concerned over someone else than himself, I've known two or three cases of this spiritual problem in which the individual was suddenly transformed by an unavoidable responsibility. They suddenly realized they had a duty that had to be performed. They rose magnificently to this responsibility, and the psychic problem vanished instantly. But there has to be something bigger than our fears. If we start correctly with our philosophic growth, truth is always bigger than our fears. But too many people live in a universe in which truth is lost. <coughs> the moment we stop believing in forces of evil persecuting us for no reason, we have betrayed our own faith in the universe. There is no other answer. But we do not know this. We can't think it through anymore. We have lost our perspective. We are simply hurt. And where we are hurt, there is no justice. We have to restore these values. We have to straighten them out and build again a pattern of positive conviction on which we can uh, live. If we can voluntarily reassume responsibilities that we have attempted to avoid, this will also help. It's like the young man who comes in to me and he says, I am not getting any discipline at home. I'm now graduating from high school. I, I think the only thing for me to do is to commit myself to the Navy for three years and see what they can do with me. And the man says, if I don't do this, I will never be able to discipline myself. So perhaps for this young man, the Navy is the perfect thing, because at least he will come out being able to say, yes, sir, and no, sir. 
which is more than the average person can do. He will also know that when an order is given, he will obey, which the average child has not discovered. He also realizes that he's part of a team, and if he betrays the team, he is pretty much of a skunk. In civilian life, we don't know this. I have known several instances where young men have done this and have come back uh, a credit to themselves and their families, would otherwise have been on the street and probably in uh, delinquency from lack of, dis of discipline and direction. So where we have a person who finds himself slipping into a negative psychic condition, we have the same thing. Put yourself under discipline. I doubt if the Navy would be interested, but there are other things you can do. You can create your own discipline. And you can say to yourselves, if I fail in this, then I know for certain just how weak I am and how far I am from the thing I think I am. Get these things very straight and very firm in ourselves, and we can generally defeat this psychic problem even after it settles in. But we can never defeat it by trying to use magic against magic. For the bigger the invocations and formulas and charms we make, the bigger the other side makes. And if we have the super charm, they have the super super charm, and so it goes on to infinity. Because we are dealing with a thing so abstract, so elusive in its own proportions, that we really never know whether we have one or not. Under these conditions, the only answer is to take hold of the matter. If you are not in that kind of trouble, stay out of it and be grateful that it has been your wonderful privilege to be able to grow without seeing things. If you are seeing things, either have your eyes attended to immediately, or begin to dig into basic systems of thinking that are going to give you a dynamic, vital, meaningful pursuit in life. And under no conditions, if you are miserable, unhappy, defeated by life, run to some form of psychic phenomena for escape, because it is escape only into misery. If you can keep these thoughts rather clearly in mind, I think you will realize why it is not good uh, to dabble with this sort of thing. From an experimental stage, it is very foolish. It is like experimenting with uh, poisonous serpents or experimenting with some deadly material that is liable to explode in your face at any moment. Do not experiment. Uh, do not play games with life. But realize that if you really want to make philosophy your journey, as Plotinus said, build a solid knowledge supporting a well-disciplined, well-integrated character. Then as you naturally grow and properly develop any spiritual graces that you may require for your proper growth, 
will be added unto you in due season. In this way, you won't have any trouble. Thank you very much. Okay, people, we are back after that incredibly long and, and we're back <laughs> incredibly long and incredibly dense lecture from the legend manly p hall mm. one of his best but also so dense i mean he fractals he fragments out into all these different places but there were definitely some peak manly, areas manly peak hall right there going manly on. peak <laughs> hall he had peak moments yes, during that lecture where, where the magic was happening but then you know and they'll start drifting off and other things mm-hmm. yeah in the improvisational sense it, uh so much going on there what did you guys think what did you think of your first dose of manly p hall it goes in all different directions i have to say bro um i'm not let down at all I, you know i really <sighs> feel like uh God was talking to me. I felt like this was for me. So topical. And he was dead on. And I'm like such a, I'm a like serious fan now. Oh, like during that, I was literally texting that video to some of my friends. Like you got to listen to this. Wow. Well, here's the thing. That's just the the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we've covered, uh, Manly P hall the most on our lecture episodes Mm -hmm. and all the lectures that we've covered have been astounding. Some of the key ones, the tip of the P hall there. Yeah. I mean the, the (laughs) initiation of the pyramid. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah. There's so many good ones. I mean, that was one of the greatest ones I've ever heard. And they're all really good. Uh, he even did a lecture on Santa Claus and the history of Santa Claus. He's, you know, when you're talking about eight or 9,000 lectures, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I mean, you're covering a lot of stuff. He's just good at talking, man. He can just go and go and go. Yeah, Dude, he doesn't really take even, a breath. And yeah, I love yeah. hearing the um, the audience in the background. Some, sometimes, like, yeah, something yeah. really gets somebody and they're like, what ah! year was this? Yeah. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing by the sound of his voice, I'm guessing probably 80s. Okay. 70s, 80s, yeah, okay. like maybe 81, somewhere around there. Uh, they were a dollar a lecture. It was like a flat fee. Mm. And, you know, you didn't have that to. That wouldn't pay. work in this economy, guys. No. <laughs> Sometimes you can tell by things he says, though. You're like, oh, okay, this lecture was from you know, yeah. the late 60s or from the early totally. 80s or whatever. So this one didn't really, didn't really seem to specify. Well, I, I liked how he at first talked about how it's just really, really bad energetically to utilize your extra powers, your charms, your, your abilities to manipulate somebody to do something against their will, whether it's even focusing on it and making it happen. If you're that powerful of a person Mm -hmm. or doing it in a general sense, just like by manipulative behaviors and things like that is essentially is black magic. Like that's the start of it. It's, you know, I think it's, it's rooted in, a distrust. It's, it's, it's rooted in fear, anything trying to change reality. Um, you know, I just, I really appreciate just to kind of take a step back here and give my like full impression of the talk. I really appreciate the, um, cautionary tale because really what he's doing is coming from a point of having great knowledge. I mean, I don't know how someone even gets this smart. That's how impressive it is to me, but he's like, just, he knows so much. He's seen so much. He has all of these experiences in his life. Um, and this has been an experience that I've been coming to myself in really in current time, like within the last handful of months, I've been having these kind of same realizations. And 
Um, you know, I, I think it's like, this is all, you know, magic, trying to change reality, trying to manifest things. It's all really rooted from a place of trying to um, change reality. And why would we want to change reality if we really truly have faith in God? Right. There's that natural order, like he was saying, and we're trying to do something to, in his opinion, subvert that natural order. And the natural order is based in universal law. So therefore it's perfect. Right. He says, be careful to be praying for what you want or God forbid you'll get it because the universe knows what you need, you know, and you think, you know, you think, you know, and you think, you know what you want, but do you, and you know, to be careful for that, because why, why do you think you want that? And what is your aim? And a lot of it is unconscious. I mean, he's saying it's not that even people, you know, there is the purposeful trying to push your will on others, but there's also just the unconscious trying to basically move energy and do yeah. things. And, you know, people, you know, he's saying people are uh, <laughs> moving more than that. They're doing more than yeah. they know. You know, they, they I don't wrote have the down ability the quote that he said, which I, which I love, which is we all know what we want, but heaven knows what we need. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the older <laughs> prayers, like he was saying, some people are like praying for stuff. They're praying for jobs they're praying for all those things, not realizing the effect that it could have on the greater flow of the universe. But the older prayers, ancient prayers of these cultures, they were just gratitude. Yeah. They were like, I wrote Thanks. down that too. Right. I did like, too. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Cause it's all there. It's come to those people, the food, the shelter, mm-hmm. and it's just a whole lot of thank you. It really we, aligns with me in my life currently because um, I've been on this whole, you know, uh, through the Aboga medicine, learning about the Bwiti teachings. And there, one of their things is there's only one prayer. They only have one prayer and it's thank you. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's just, that's the heart of true spirituality is uh, it, it's gratitude for life because nothing is more spiritual than loving your life. Absolutely. And it's so amazing to be here. It's mind blowing to be here. And that's just it. It's it's the whole life itself is this magical thing that you should just be grateful for every second. Mm -hmm. And then the blessings that you get on top of that is just like, wow. Like if you really want to create in your life, develop yourself, utilize your talents, discover your talents, and then you're still in harmony with universal law as you become successful and those things happen, but trying to figure out some technique, some magic, some spell, some situation messy, where, bro. You, yeah, it can get <laughs> you messy. in serious yeah. situations. He talks about physical manifestations, but just the psychic weights and God knows what you're attracting. These ethereal entities. God only knows. Well, you end up making, you kind of end up making subconsciously, you make contracts with beings. And right, even if they're say. positive beings, what you're still doing is you're coming under the influence of something outside of yourself. So, I mean, even let's say it's, it's angels or guides or there's nothing malevolent, but really what you end up doing is kind of complicating your life in a sense, because you're here to enjoy your life and fulfill your will. And I think what so many people are seeking is like, well, something else outside of me, tell me what to do. When you go high, high up enough, what these things are going to tell you to do is to fucking trust yourself, believe in yourself and love yourself because within you, that that's the seed. And that's becoming truly sovereign, truly sovereign energy is being guided by your own intuition and nothing else. Right. And letting go and just letting it happen without 
putting it through all these filters, these paradigm-based filters of success and and what you think you should yeah. have and where <laughs> you think you should be, but it's just not like that if you're trusting the plan, whatever that that movement, that pattern that equals your life, then you're there. You're already there and you let go and you know what? Like the effect of letting go that cause the effect is probably all the things you're looking for. Totally. 100% bro. <laughs> right. Well, and he talked about truth and the, the truth of reality and the truth of, of your divine nature is always bigger than the fear you have. And as soon as you feed into the fear of not having enough or the fear that someone's out to get you or the fear that you're not spiritual enough or whatever it is, then you're giving up the faith that's, you're in the uh, right you're place. You're created it. by the creator. Exactly. Do you have any Therefore. idea how incredible you are to be have created by the creator? You are like, we are pieces of God. Yeah. Oh, no, it's mind We're blood. magnificent, perfect creatures that, you know, unfortunately in this reality, in this Western society, it's really easy to feel like there's something wrong with us. Like we're not complete. Like we're on a healing journey. Right. Like maybe someday you'll figure it out, but no. <laughs> it never comes you know yeah right. it's always this carrot this dangling carrot yeah. you know what i really thought it was cool when he talked about how a lot of these higher things like science and and music were guarded like you had to train yourself you had to get yourself to a certain frequency before you were able to access this and then when there was this like fall of the classical area this very broad term we'll just say fall of the classical era then all of this was unlocked without any of the knowledge, like the ritual, the knowledge, the understanding, mm -hmm. the deeper understanding behind it. And it caused significant amount of chaos to have this magic unleashed without training. Yeah. Right. I wrote that down um, when he was talking about that math and science and other disciplines used to be mystery teachings mm. and to have them, they were bound to right use because of the purification and the right. rituals and, and now having them be let out, there is no, there's no ethical binding, I yeah. guess. And so, you know, science or whatever science can be has anything. become quite the amorphous uh, thing these days based on, you know, the way that our health and uh, food train is all headed. It's like, bought by corporations and i would say those right. corporations are not bound to write use no they're bound to make <laughs> not money. at all Profit. quite quite the opposite <laughs> which, which would be fine. yeah it's good to you know generate profit for a business that's why businesses exist it's just the ethics the morals have to be there and that's just right. not These what's all happened. seem like symptoms of the same thing right like the greed and power sought by the uh, elite and the, you know, the big mega corporations and the same thing that is in like man's natural tendency to want to um, continue to, you know, become more powerful or try to associate with the right spirits. It's going to give it some kind of power. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of reality and people thinking that power is somehow going to enrich their human experience. It's power is the trick. Love is the real power right. oddly enough right. it's the because infinite it's, ultimate power well it's pure it's freedom it's freedom from even needing power that's right. more powerful than power right <laughs> <laughs> brain you you took some more notes what what else do you have to say oh we've touched on a lot of it i was really just uh 
this note you see here is my summary of okay. of all of my pages of notes. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know the the uh, disciplines being let out without ethics was a huge thing. Uh, also, yeah. at the end, he was talking about um, spirituality through the lens of your practical physical life. Like if you weren't here to be here and live this visceral human experience, then you wouldn't be here. And so, you know, to yeah. come out of the cave or, you know, you can meditate for 24 hours a day, but what are you really getting out of that? And to put yeah. your, um, your service into your practical life so is, true you know, something worth and, and, you know, to have discipline and to control your emotions and, uh, really be working towards just, you know, working on yourself really yeah. is all you need to do, but not to be selfish in. Right. It's not for, the, the motivation, which is the polarity yeah. right there. Yeah. The motivations <laughs> you, we all have to be careful because we're such flawed, you know, we're flawed humans, you know, we're just kind of wild in our bodies. We're underdeveloped. It's fine. It's part of the experience. Driving a human body is tricky. You got to figure have stuff out. To be careful to not be <laughs> selfish in some of our motivations. Yes. If you think about it, like he's saying this magic of prayer and we're just like, oh God, can I please have that thing? Or as so many of us have in the past or that job or like, can I just do, please God, please like, yeah, it's not, please, God, can I have the thing? It's, thank you for the things. Exactly. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you for, for what I already thing. have. Thank you for just this life. Exactly. And on that note, thank you for being here, Evan it's Burton. great to be here, man. It was your first Manly P. Hall lecture, I urge you to take the deep dive, just like everyone listening right now. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone take the deep dive on Manly P. Hall. We've covered a lot of his best lectures so far, but... When you have that many, there's still so many to go. I was kind of torn on which one to choose for this week, but I feel like I chose the right one. And I know you probably feel that same way too. And Bryn, thank you so much for being here again. Absolutely. Thanks and for having me. We have the dual guest co-host. I know. I love it. It's fun. It's it's fun. It's it's, cool it's very epic. Yes, the round table discussion. It's so cool. And the reason I'm gonna say honestly, people, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I have Finally. some <laughs> ulterior motives in choosing this Manly P. Hall lecture, not just because Brother Evan here has not been exposed to him in this way, but really because next week I've got a guest. Dun, dun, dun. I've got a guest. I've got a guest. Is there a drum roll? That was Manly P. Hall's protege. Ooh. And he worked with him directly for many years. His name's Ronnie Pontiac, and he's coming on next week. It's going to be Pontiac. absolutely incredible. It's going to blow your mind. So this week is going to be feeding into next week. And I feel like with all your notes, Bryn, you probably have one more thing. What I do. You, okay. I just remembered I wrote down a quote. It's, he said, in prayer, let yourself have one regulation. Let it be beautiful. If oh. it is returned to us, uh, if the prayer is returned to us, we would be glad. Yeah. Ask nothing of another person other than to bless them. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and we learned, Fire. A, we learned a lot about magic this week. Look, I'm all about magic. White magic, Christian magic, high frequency magic, whatever you want to call it. Christ consciousness magic, I should say. Whatever you want to call it, that's great. That stuff's great. But it's like when you start using it for this really... 
basic personal gain, satiating these things that maybe yeah. you don't necessarily need. And it's not about service. Yes, we need to take care of ourselves. But, and I'm just going to say but and let you think about that, what that means to you. Evan, anything else before we go? Well, how much time we got, Jay? <laughs> Four and a half hours. Go. Let's hear it. Let's hear all the so, notes. You know, I just, I would like to tie it up here with just a little personal anecdote, a brief right. story. Yeah, no, do it. Go. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of being one of these guys. So we talked about two different types of people who are on this, that on the deep magic supernatural hunt, right? One is the people that are trying to have some kind of power to change something. The other is um, people who want to grow, people who are wanting to grow. And that's who I've always been, very eager to grow and become more and learn. And, you know, I could always see this future version of myself. And so I was going for that. And over time, I have become associated and become very good friends with people who are all up in that realm, psychic, intuitive, metaphysical, channeling, medium type people. Um, and really what ended up happening to me is I became kind of really focused on opening my extrasensory perceptions, becoming intuitive and being able to, you know, hear spirits. And um, what has happened over time is that that has started becoming more of a reality for me, especially with my uh, work with the aboga medicine and cl just clearing things in me, realizing that I'm naturally intuitive and then learning the ways in which to get in touch with these and communicate and channel. And, um, I had an experience recently where, um, this happened to me in a way that was deliberate. Um, there was a spirit trying to contact me to tell me something. It said, you need to come here to get this information. So it was a benevolent spirit. I went to this place and during my time sleeping, this entity came and started communicating with me and it was in the room with me and I channeled its information that it had for me. And then I proceeded to have nightmares that night. And I woke up with something sitting on my chest, like a force on my chest. I woke up in a panic. It was scary and I didn't really like it. And I walked away from that experience going, you know, I've been trying my whole life to go to do this and I didn't, I, th there's nothing here for me other than confusion and fear. And then, you know, I, I've just been sinking back into being grateful for being exactly what I am. I don't need to be anything more. This life right here on this planet, you know, with my kids, with my family, with the colors and the sights and the sounds and the food, it's just, it's so rich as it is. And I believe that this over kind of uh, focus on uh, growing or becoming more and then, you know, getting into the spiritual realms, it's really a separation of yourself. It's not loving yourself right where you're at. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. If you choose to do it and it's exciting for you and you love it, go do it. But, you know, I think that that path for um, a lot of people is a long distraction. I really do. And so that's why I resonated so deeply with uh, this this lecture. So wow. Wow. Yeah. well, that I, into my life. Yeah. And I, I kind of was thinking about that as well as he was saying that it's just. You know, we do strive to grow. That's one of the things we talk about on this podcast quite a bit is that we're striving for growth, but we have to understand that the growth has to be rooted in not just service, but just not feeding our ego in yeah. any way. Only thing I want to channel is my higher self. 
Yes. Yeah. Me. Want to be me. Want to be me. That's all you can be. That's all you can be, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. I, uh, oh. I, no, that just reminds me because when I was probably 12 or 13 and I uh, made friends with a girl who was like, my mom's metaphysical. Yeah, I was like, whoa, totally. cool. What does that mean? Okay. So she, you know, I learned all these cool things about crystals and astral projection and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like 13 being like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to totally. astral project. I'm going to, and I had this little tiny tourmaline that I'd pulled off of my like fourth grade geology oh, really? thing that was like <laughs> tourmaline protects you. So I put it by my bed and that night I proceeded to wake up and feel like I was being like choked by something, by an there entity. You go. Okay. And, and it Fun. scared the shit out of me and I put away the tourmaline and I was like I'm never doing that I'm again you know and then it took me years and years later to be like to realize like that was a protection of like hey little girl like you don't know what you're getting into like you're not no, ready to go don't like go here don't you're and so it scared me with the purpose of keeping me in my body and learning who I was without yeah. traveling at least ah. that's what I've come to deduce from that um, um that experience yeah but young Bryn, the yeah. uh, traveling multiple dimensions <laughs> ah. no actually I was put right back in my body I was not ready I to knew travel that was the reason you are our consistent <laughs> guest co-host yeah it's, it's bringing the high vibes just like Evan Burton who let me tell you Evan Burton has his own podcast living in dubiously which of course you can find on every platform and his music that he makes with his brother and the incredible drummer Maddie Maddie Narmus. Yes, Maddie Narmus. He's enormous when you think about his drum skills. The guy's absolutely incredible. Indubious is the band. You can find them also on every streaming platform. Take the deep dive into Indubious. I if you love music, you won't regret it. If you love high frequency, like activation. If music, you hate really cool things, don't go there. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go to there. And, and Bryn's company, of course, Vinyl Force Herbs, all organic, crystal infused, just the highest frequency medicine. Highest vibest. Yes. And we're here as high vibe people, star seeds, loving you, trying to help you grow. Hopefully, you learn something from Manly P. Hall, just like we all did. It's it's great when we bring the energy of these people who are omnipresent now in those other dimensions. Still with us, but maybe not in a physical matter-based sense. It's cool to bring them in, to bring their energy in and learn from them. They're excited. They're happy. I'm sure wherever Manly is now, he's happy Mm. that we're all learning from him. So Mm. there you go. Yeah. Bless you guys. Thank you so much for being here, Bryn. Thank you. Evan. Thanks, Evan. Love you guys. Thanks for bringing me in. All right. And everyone, incredible episode. Always take the deep dive on Manly and, of course, Ronnie Pontiac. So we'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth. (laughs) 